So we're coming up on almost three years since my family became part of your family. And by way of complete candor, I will say that there have been a few moments along the way in which some of you have looked at us as we've disclosed more of ourselves unto you, kind of like um, the dog, the RCA dog looks at it like this, like, what? R really? And a lot of times that sort of experience that we have surrounds when we start talking about our diet, what we eat. Uh, when our oldest son uh, came down with type 1 diabetes, the whole world changed for us, the whole culinary world for us. And whereas we don't eat in a bizarre way, we don't eat monkey brains, really. However, my wife did once make muffins with cricket flour. And it's at this point that my vegan friends are clicking away, clicking away. But you've heard that and, and, and while we don't eat in a bizarre way, it's still strange to a lot of people and that's fine. And, and you've been fine with it too. No, no love lost, no, no harm done. You sort of hear that and you go, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Now I, I start on that sort of light note to kind of shift into a more sober gear. Here's the deal. In a season of virus, affliction, and unrest like we're experiencing right now, I, I think you would agree that you and I are all very liable to operating on a very steady diet of words and feelings and actions and recommendations that are liable to engender something in us that is absolutely opposed to what we need. In a world like what we're facing, in a world where it seems like the, the rule of the day is to be suspicious or to be presumptuous or to offer recrimination or to offer any way of resentments or even quasi-condemnations. In a world like that, are we so naive to think that what's happening in a larger world can happen in the church? It can. And I might be so bold as to say that in a world full of counter-arguments and counter-claims and, and counterpoints and points, um, what you and I most need from each other, we are finding increasingly difficult to offer to one another. And that's not just an unfortunate circumstance. W.H. Auden put it rather soberly when he said, the scandal of Christian disunity is too serious. And about 1700 years before that, St. Ambrose said, no one heals himself by wounding another. To maintain a priority of peace and purity in our midst, uh, it's a struggle because there is a certain kind of satisfaction that comes with demeaning somebody else. And that's more than just a flaw. It is like Ambrose says, a self-inflicted wound. I'm here in front of the labyrinth here at Luther Ridge, not because we needed a nice place to put it, but because in some ways it's a metaphor for where we are. What's the way out of the labyrinth? And Peter has something to tell us about that because he's out to say that in a moment like this, it calls for a certain response that is based on having a strange diet. What does this moment call for in the way of a response? We're going to look at that question from three angles. What is that response? What are the reasons for it? And what is the regimen to it? What is the response to this moment? What are the reasons for that response? And what is the regimen we take up that we might respond in that way? That's where we're going. We're 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22.
Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. So by way of context, let me remind you, Peter is not writing to a bunch of churches that are in a season of peace. He's writing to churches that are in a season of duress for any number of reasons, but mostly for what they believe. They're seen as strange. They're seen as strange for what they believe. And they're not just seen as strange, they're treated as strange, like they're not from here. And with that treatment from an onlooking world that finds them a little bit bizarre, there's a cost to them. So they need to hear from him and they need to hear a little context. And under that pressure and under that duress, it, it is always an experience, whether they or we, that it's rather uh, bracing and illuminating. You, you kind of discover what you really hold to in moments when you are put under pressure and you are under duress. And what happens in a moment like that is that you're tempted. You are, you are tempted to set aside certain commitments, but you're also tempted to let certain things come between you and those with whom you're in allegiance with, with whom you have a loyalty. And what is true of Peter's day, I would say, is also true of our day. We are in a moment where there are all sorts of feelings that we're feeling that perhaps we can't make quite sense of, that we don't have a context for, that maybe is hard to rein in in the moment. And from those feelings derive words. And a lot of times those words are impulsive. And a lot of times those were impulsive words that we speak, we have to walk back. And after a while, maybe we don't even think about walking them back anymore because we're so numb or tired. And you begin to discover what you really believe. And last week, Andrew opened up the section of Peter's letter in which Peter's overarching desire for that part was to commit unto those he is speaking that their calling is to one of holiness. That they are to be holy as God is holy. And here in our passage, Peter is continuing in that theme by saying that the center of what it means to be holy has a lot to do with who we are in the relationships we are with one another, especially with those who claim the same faith in Jesus. And here at the end of verse 22, Peter outlines for us what is the fundamental response that is required in a season in full of pressure and duress. And it's what he says there at the end of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Into a, a community that is under pressure and duress, into a community that is tempted with suspicion, uh, being suspicious or being presumptuous or being resentful or even uttering condemnations um, in a world that is full of claims and counterclaims, points and counterpoints. In a world like that, the response that is required more than any other time is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not just tolerate one another, not just put up with one another, but seek one another's good 
and welfare in a sincere and abiding and a steadfast way. Uh, look, in a, in a moment like what we find ourselves in, both in the world and in the church, uh, all sorts of stuff begin to bubble up to the surface or begin to, to seep out of us. And uh, Paul Tripp, in a, in a conference in a very different setting, talking about marriage, he, he pulls out a water bottle and he takes the cap off and he begins to shake it. And what comes out? Water, right? And in a moment like that, he asks, why, why did the water come out? And everybody says, because you shook it. And he goes, yeah, but what's the real reason the water came out? Not because he shook it, but because that's what's inside of it. Everybody's shaken. Everybody gets shook up, but it is never the shaking that puts in you in what comes out of you. And you begin to discover what's in you when you get shaken up. And in these shaking days, I ask myself and I ask you, what's coming out of you? Is it something like love? Is it earnest love? Is it love from a pure heart? No matter what you may be convinced of, no matter what your convictions are, no matter what you might have differences of that maybe even threaten to divide you or divide us all, the question remains, what are you most known for? What do people most see in you as you are coming to defend what you most think is true? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart is our desperate need and the one response that a moment like this requires. Now, what, is, what does love even look like? It, it, it is a, uh, we always risk using that word and becoming immediately sentimental with it or bringing in all sorts of associations that are full from the full substance of what it is. What does it mean to love? You know, Paul put it rather comprehensively in his letter to the church at Corinth. It's a text that you've heard at probably too many weddings. And there in chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, he says this, Love is, pa love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's as comprehensive a definition of love. That's as penetrating an explanation of love as you might imagine. But, but before you get overwhelmed by the bar that he sets that's so high about what love is, Peter's friend Paul, remember also that love is not complicated. Love is so uncomplicated, it can be distilled down into what Paul sells elsewhere to the church at Philippi. In chapter 2 of Philippians 2, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It isn't meant to trip you up. He doesn't mean to set for us whether Peter, Paul, or Jesus, or Mary, doesn't mean to bind us in a certain way where we feel overwhelmed by what he's asking. But there's one more nuance of what it means to love one another earnestly from a pure heart that I also want to harvest from Peter's buddy Paul. And it happens in a sort of towards the very end of his letter to the church at Rome. In, in Romans 14, you hear Paul speak of what's 
threatening that company, um, he realizes that in that area, in that season, there was a, a great deal of controversy over food. Amazing, right? Food. Controversy over food. In what sense? There were some in the new community, mostly whom were Jews, who felt some food was unclean, whereas there were many others, mostly Gentiles, who thought all food was made clean. And surely we have spoken of that in earlier days, what happens in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, what Jesus says when Paul gets up and gets in Peter's face in Galatians 2. The question about food was still a matter of debate in that day. And what is true then is true of every day. Not about food, but in every day there'll be differences. In every season, one should not be surprised to find that there are differences within a church about things that they hold quite dear. And in that moment, there in chapter 14, Paul puts it this way. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment? In other words, in that season, whether you believed that some foods were clean or whether you believed all foods were clean, whatever your conviction was, was never going to be a pretext for you to keep from seeking the good of another. It was never going to be an opportunity or a justification to condemn them for that belief. Which is all well and good, but how did that work out in practice? How did love look like in practice in the midst of those differences that didn't seem to be going away anytime soon? Paul continues there in chapter 14, starting in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Paul is acknowledging where his belief lies. He believes that all foods are clean, but he doesn't use his fellow Jews' belief that some foods are not clean as a pretext for not seeking their good from not honoring their conviction, from not seeking their welfare. And he, he lays that idea out down in a principle, which happens there at the very first part of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. You may think that you are strong in faith and you see others as weak in faith over whatever the case may be, and that's fine. And you may be right and you may be wrong, but Paul is saying this, or rather asking this, whose concern is foremost in your mind? Whose welfare takes precedence in a moment of those differences, whether you are the one of strong faith or the one of weak faith? To put it rather bluntly, friends, to be a citizen of this country, you are not obligated to love anyone, really. There's no law for that. But to be a citizen of his kingdom, the obligation is to love all, especially in moments where those differences run deep. Now, you hear that, and you probably agree with that, and it's nothing new that you've heard me say, and yet uh, there's probably maybe a part of you that feels like, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it. Um, Maybe I'm not compelled by it, and, and maybe you have your reasons why you find it easier to traffic in suspicion and presumption and resentment and maybe even condemnation, even though you may not say it. 
you have your reasons. And you know what? That's great. Terrific. Let's, let's talk about reasons for just a moment. There are reasons for that kind of response to walk in love. And Peter gives us two. And one of those reasons comes right from the very first word. Having purified yourselves through obedience to the truth that you might walk in mutual love. We have from God a new calling that's based on a new status. We, we have a new calling to love because we've become, we've become set apart for the purpose of love. Now let me unpack that a little bit. When he says, having purified yourselves, let's make sure we know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean you've made yourselves clean, you've cleaned yourselves up. He doesn't mean that you've been called to be clean and now you must make yourselves clean. He's talking about having been purified through an obedience to truth. Which truth? The truth of the gospel. This obedience to the truth has everything to do with first believing the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you first believe things that you are not capable of. To believe the gospel is to believe you're incapable of cleansing yourself. To believe yourself incapable of atoning for your sin. To believe yourself incapable of ever impressing God so much that he might forgive you of all that you've done and welcome you into his family. To believe that is to believe yourself un incapable of making yourself clean, but instead to believe that through the purity of Jesus, you have his record. That on the basis of what he has done, you have everything that he has. His record, his resume, his CV, that's the gospel. And that's the new status that you're born into. And therefore, as that new status, you belong not foremost to yourself. You belong not foremost to anybody else that lays claim to you. You belong foremost to Him. And in that new status, from that comes a new calling. And that new calling is not to you do you. That new calling is not to follow your bliss mainly. That new calling is to love as He is loved. The first reason why the response to this moment requires that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart is that you have a whole new calling based upon a whole new status. The second reason comes right after the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You and I all have this in common. We were all born of a man and of a woman. And as soon as we emerged from our mother's womb, we were born toward dying. A stopwatch started for us. It is our lot. And while to grapple with your own mortality, you can't avoid that. It's actually a mark of maturity. It's why the psalmist says, uh, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. You can't avoid that. And yet you and I both know that our fear of death is really a profound reason that keeps us from loving, that keeps us from risking, that keeps us from sacrificing. This word, when Peter speaks of being born of an imperishable seed, which is itself a word of promise in the gospel. He is saying to us, yes, we are bound to die, but we are also bound to live because we're born of something that does not die. 
that does not grow old. We are reborn into a new origin in which death is not our end. And that changes our whole calculation when it comes to love because it makes love possible. Love possible in a way that maybe nothing else can. Isn't it, isn't it true that you and I are rather often kept from giving ourselves fully in love because of what we're afraid to lose? Because what we, what we hold on to and what we think we most need, we're, we're most unwilling to give up and, and that keeps us from loving because we think that's our most desperate need and, and we, won't, we won't let it go and so we won't love in those ways. And, and isn't it also true that maybe some of the things that simmer beneath the surface, the, the things that are like uh, retaliatory spirits and resentments and recriminations and all those things that keep us estranged from one another, isn't it true that part of what drives that is this un conscious fear of loss if we don't defend those things to the teeth. Peter is saying that you and I have a new origin and it means that what we have, what we most find precious, it can't be taken from us. And somehow when we believe that what we most need can't be taken, that frees us up to love. That's why Jim Elliot says something what, 75 years ago that we all remember. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you believe that you weren't going to die, how would that change your calculation about everything that's keeping you from loving in the way that you think Peter might be calling you to love? There's a new origin, a new origin, and that's what makes love possible. But even so, just because love is possible, is it sustainable? We, we all know, G.K. Chesterton says, the reason they call love a virtue is because it's hard. And love is hard because it calls you to it without change, without, without interruption. And yet, we all know we don't love in an uninterrupted way. So what will sustain us in that love? Not only is there an origin that we have that's new, we also have a new origin that offers us a new anchor for love. And I, and I derive that kind of metaphor from where he quotes Isaiah when he says, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, you saw me earlier in our garden. We, we've planted that garden. We've watered that garden. We've seen it grow up. We've eaten from that garden. But this fall, that garden will die. And unless we plant something else, that ground will lie, that ground will lie fallow. It, nothing lasts. Peter is out to say to us that what we were born of in this word of promise doesn't die. It doesn't become obsolete. It doesn't grow old. It is a steadfast thing. And that steadfast thing is like an anchor. What do anchors do? They, they hold us to what we need to be held to and they keep us from drifting from it. Now, why, why is that a big deal? Why, why do we need an anchor for love? Here's the thing. There's a lot of talk going on in the world about rights and about dignity. And a lot of those rights and a lot of that dignity is affirmed just because, just because we should, so the argument goes. And that's all the ground that they have for it. That's the only justification for it is just because. And yet, friends, when it comes to the justification of rights and of dignity, if the only thing that justifies it is your demands for it, well, it's just as easy to deny those things just because. Peter is taking us 
out of ourselves and grounding the call to love in something beyond ourselves, something like an anchor that holds us to it and keeps us from drifting from it. And that, that response, that reason is its own justification for love and its own guarantee that we might actually love still because we are tied to something that does not change and that will not give up on us. And that thing is God and his word of promise. These are the reasons we have for the response to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But even with reasons, you can't, you can't think yourself into love. What will allow us to love abidingly, a love steadfastly, love without begrudgingliness? That's the last thing I think Peter wants to get to us. There is a response that this moment requires. That are, there are reasons for that response, but there's also a regimen. A regimen that we might walk in love faithfully. And, and this regimen is actually two things that are one thing. It is uh, two sides of uh, one coin. It is something uh, that goes part and parcel with another, and without one, the other can't be sustained. It doesn't go together. And it's, it's almost like baseball. You remember baseball? I remember baseball. It's like a baseball swing. Um, swinging at a baseball is more than just planting your feet, and it's more than just um, uh, uh, turning into the ball. It's both. You, you can't do one without the other, not if you want to hit it far. The regimen that we might respond in love for these reasons is two things in one, and it comes down to this. It's like a baseball swing. It is one, putting off, and two, longing for in the same move. Putting off comes from what he says there in chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now those are what we might call vices. And what all of those vices have in common is that they are that which threatens a community. That which threatens to split and um, bring disunity to a people. And Peter is saying, you don't just sort of ought to think twice about the vices. You, you shouldn't sort of, sort of lightly concern yourself with them. He's saying, don't put them away, rid yourselves of them. And if I might put them in a more familiar frame, if you're a parent, there's probably at least one instance in which you saw your child approaching the threshold of your home and they are filthy and they are nasty and they, they have a stench around them. They're like pig pen and you can see it. It's a cloud. And what you said to them in that moment was not this light. Now, dear, don't walk inside the house. It was, don't you dare set foot in this house. Don't you dare. What you are wearing does not become you. What you are wearing is not fitting for you. And what you are wearing ought not be brought into the most intimate places of this community. And that is what Peter is saying unto them. We have to rid ourselves of all those things that do not become us, that do not fit us, and they do not serve this people that are set apart for a holy purpose in love. You have to rid yourself of it. You have to literally put away, like taking off dirty clothes. That's literally what the Greek word means. Take it off. Put it away. Put it off. But how do you do that? Because that just sounds like an act of will. Hey, just don't do it. Stop it. That's why I said it's, it's two things that's really one thing, and they always go together. Maybe you remember uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, novel, the, the, the short story, the, uh, the 
Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and you maybe remember Eustace. Eustace is a rather intellectual and uh, bright young fellow, and yet very full of himself, and uh, <clears throat> demonstrably refuses to have anybody tell him what to do. And late in that film, you see all manner of vices kind of bubbling up to the surface in Eustace, including the one of greed. And he begins to steal from a treasure, and then that sends him into this nap. And when he wakes from his nap, he finds that he himself has turned into a dragon. And he can't not be a dragon anymore. He can't, he can't transform himself back into the little boy that he knew himself to be. And in that moment, he encounters Aslan. And Aslan says to him, you're going to have to let me undress you. And what that moment looks like is how Disney imagined it in this way. See, in that moment, Eustace is powerless to rid himself of the thing that he is most finds despicable in himself, and yet it is only Aslan that can remove it from him. And it's painful. And when you read Lewis's words himself, you hear Eustace say, it hurt like Billy, but oh, how it felt so good when he undressed me like he did that way, when he took the scales of my dragonness from me. The Lord must do it. He must rid yourselves of it, but how does he do that? In verse 3, you hear Peter end this passage by saying this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When Peter speaks in that way, he is not trying to demean us as if we're young and, and uh, incapable of being mature. He's actually calling us to maturity. He speaks of us as newborn infants to, to communicate the idea that you and I are utterly dependent of ever putting away everything that is opposed to love. You and I cannot do for ourselves what is absolutely necessary for ourselves if we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So how does it happen? How do we rid ourselves of that malice? We long for the pure spiritual milk. What is that? What is that milk and what does it mean to long? You might think he's talking about just read your Bible all the time or listen to a bunch of sermons and though he wouldn't fault you for that and neither would I, it's not a bad idea. He's actually talking about something more specific, something for you to seek and to crave. See, when you and I are tempted to malice, we're seeking something. When you and I are tempted to envy, we're seeking something. When you and I are tempted to slander and be suspicious and be presumptuous and to be resentful and to condemn, we're seeking something in that moment. We want something badly. And whatever it might be, we think it's good. But what Peter is out to say to us 
is that we must come to long for the belief that God is our most good, that he is most kind. As the beavers say of Aslan, he's not safe, but he's good. And that is what we're to seek. That's the pure spiritual milk, believing that God is so good that it's almost like tasting a fine meal. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this when he said in a famous sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light, he said, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. Friends, whenever you are tempted to malice in these days of pressure and duress, whenever you are tempted to presume or to be suspicious or to hold someone even in contempt, it is in that moment that you are needing to ask the Lord that you might see his goodness and why he is better than anything else that you might be seeking that leads you to do anything but love. And what better reason to believe that God is good and kind and beautiful than in staring and basting your brain in the story of God dying for those who were vile and who seemed to prefer reviling others rather than loving them. That's what it is to crave. And apart from that, there is little hope of loving ever or sustainably. This is the strange diet he has commended unto us, to seek his face, to seek his goodness, that we might see him as good and delight in him like a fine meal. Because it is through delighting in him that we might find reasons to delight in each other, even if we differ in strong ways. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.